This is To The Right House, a new podcast series by the Global Campus of Human Rights. From scepticism to hope, from utopia to empathy, we discuss human rights, riding waves, but also signalling where the light is. This podcast was recorded in Venice, Italy, on the island of Lido, at the Global Campus headquarters. Hello out there. Welcome to the Global Campus podcast series on engaging with human rights skepticism. Today is the fifth and final session in our podcast series. Our topic for today is the most fundamental and perhaps most challenging expression of human rights skepticism, namely the question of whether the very concept of universal human rights is at all meaningful. We refer to this as ontological skepticism, as it raises questions about the reality of human rights, are human rights real, and in what sense? Or are they fictions, mere constructs, instruments of oppression? This raises questions about universalism, about our common humanity, and about the historical legacy that over centuries has crystallized in the Universal Human Rights International Law Framework. I'm George Ulrich, Academic Director of the Global Campus and host of the podcast. With me today to tackle these profound questions is Professor Costas Dusinas. He's Professor of Law and Philosophy at Birkbeck uh, University of London. He was founder of the Birkbeck School of Law, the Birkbeck Institute of Humanities, and the School of Law at the University of Cyprus. Costas Dusinas was also a Syriza uh, MP in Greece from 2015 to 2019. His primary focus over many years has been on critical legal studies. In the course of his distinguished scholarly career, Ducinas has been an early scholar of human rights, but also an early critic in a constructive sense. He has powerfully raised questions about the humanity as a parameter of exclusion as well as inclusion, and also about the possibility of human rights colluding with dominant economic and political interest in the neoliberalistic and post-colonial world. Ducina's publications include a trilogy of seminal uh, books called The End of Human Rights, Human Rights and Empire, and The Radical Philosophy of Human Rights. In today's discussion, we'll focus primarily on arguments presented in the third volume of this trilogy, The Radical Philosophy of Human Rights, which, by the way, includes material separately published as seven theses on human rights, which have been standard reading assignments in seminars that we've been conducting here at the global campus for several years. Some of the main themes of the book have to do with conceptual analysis of the legal person, dignity, the self, paradoxes of human rights, and also, in the final part, the revival of a claim to a right to resistance, indeed, revolution. We'll try to touch on all of these aspects of the argument, but first I would like to invite you, Costas, to share with us a short reflection on what motivated you to undertake this critical examination of uh, human rights and human rights law over the course of um, at least 20 years or more. Please. Thank you very much, uh, George. And I'm really honored and delighted uh, to be uh, discussing with you in this uh, series of podcasts. Uh, and uh, I think they're making a very important contribution to our understanding of uh, human rights. Now, you asked me 
how I got uh, to that kind of work uh, and these books that you referred to. And I suppose the most important reason is my personal history. I was a student of law during the brutal dictatorship in my home country of Greece between 67 and 74. And I joined the student resistance at the time, was roughed up by the regime, and I was really delighted when the Council of Europe expelled Greece in 1969, after a case was brought to the European Court of Human Rights by Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and the Netherlands. Indeed, Russia is the second country to be expelled from the Council of Europe. It was done earlier this year. Now, resistance, uh, which goes back to my personal history, is a main topic and the main interest uh, for me in my work. And indeed, the resistance of ordinary Ukrainians uh, today is a reminder that humanity always emerges through acts of resistance. And natural rights, the predecessor of human rights, was, of course, again, the result of revolutions. Now, the second part, which is the more kind sort of intellectual root uh, of uh, my work, is that after the end of the dictatorship, I went to London to carry out my doctoral research uh, at the LSE. And pretty soon I encountered a certain theoretical or conceptual difficulty. Human rights are perhaps the most important, or one of the most important liberal uh, institutions. But if you look at liberal legal and political theory and philosophy, I think they actually leave quite a lot of uh, standard social theory out of it. You know, they, they, you know, they're really highly problematic. You know, what you learn if you go to sociology, to politics, anthropology, uh, any of the standard social sciences in the first year is, you know, what it's been called the three major continents of thought. Um, and, and they include uh, Hegel and Marx, and of course, dialectic, struggle, and so on. Nietzsche and Foucault, will and power. And of course, Freud and the post-Freudians, psychoanalysis and subjectivity. And none of this appears in any of the standard textbooks, theories uh, in jurisprudence, uh, and so on. And we have somehow an erasure of 200 years of social theory and our most important and extremely, I think, central theorists of uh, political philosophy go back to the 18th century, to the social contract, the categorical imperative. You know, they deal with people as if they're fully control of themselves and so on. And I think, uh, you know, when I saw that, when I was reading all these, uh, all these people, all these philosophers um, of the, the great um, social theory, Western social theory, uh, while at the same time doing my PhD on human rights, I, at some point I decided that you know, I should put the two together. And this is, in a sense, what my project has been, uh, to basically work out how we reached where we are today. I mean, what does it mean to say that we're human? What it means to be human? So to that extent, this kind of work tries, whether it succeeds is a different question, to work out a genealogy of uh, human rights and of the human 
uh, uh, to understand how law and rights and human rights are key contributors, the key tools in the creation of the human person, of the human individual, of the human. Uh, so that rights, I would claim, I think this is one of the key, my key conclusions in this work, rather than being given to humans on account of their humanity, because we're all human, we have rights, it is rights, the types of rights that are given to particular people in particular uh, ages, in particular countries, societies, and so on, that create the human, create the self, ourselves. And in doing that, rights, human rights, the law, in constructing you and me, what it means to be a human in a particular place at a particular time, they also distribute people, humans, across a spectrum of full humans, of lesser humans, and at the end also of some people who are excluded uh, from humanity. So maybe this is a good, good place to pause. Thanks so much for, the, for these introductory reflections, which in fact take us right into the first part of your, the first several chapters of your uh, radical philosophy of rights, where you're analyzing the, uh, the genealogy, as you say, of the legal person, but also concepts such as dignity, self-subjectivity, and, um, and the role of rights in these, in these contexts. You also have occasional contrast with pre-modern ways of configuring similar issues and topics, and I find it all extremely enlightening and, and, uh, and, and challenging. Now, if I understand your argument correctly, what you were telling us about how legal personhood is, is created by society and, and in many ways, as you say, is distributed and some have more entitlements than others through the, um, through the uh, uh, allocation of rights. If I understand correctly, you, you contrast this with another um, concept that runs through modern European history, the, the moral self which mm. is the, the subject of, of a Kantian dignity and in many ways also the implicit subject of, uh, of uh, the implicit human of hum in, the, in the international human rights framework, at least as, as I understand it. So you have a universal uh, uh, human self and then you have the legal person, the, the, the socially created identity that, that has differential value and, and uh, access and entitlement and so on. How do, you, how do you see the tension between those two different ways of uh, interpreting or configuring the um, idea of the human? Yeah, sure, yes. Uh, there is a tension, there is also a configuration, like you put it, a coming together. Uh, and in a, in a sentence, the, my conclusion is that the idea of the human, of the self as free, rational, equal with others, which is very much part of the uh, human rights tradition, is the outcome of a long historical journey that goes from Jerusalem to Athens to Rome to the 18th century revolutions and, of course, the contemporary declarations of rights. So the legal person first. The idea of the person uh, and the term uh, persona in uh, Rome uh, initially uh, was a theatrical mask. Uh, the mask that uh, uh, actors were putting on stage in order to adopt a particular character uh, and so on. Uh, so it was the mask 
that ritual and theatrical performance put on people, but then Rome, uh, Roman law, transferred that function from the stage to uh, the uh, human. And the idea of the uh, legal person, persona in, in Latin, was created in uh, Rome. Uh, and of course, it was at that point, and I think still today, uh, both a general uh, predication, a general characteristic uh, of some people, but at the same time, a tool or a, 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 a way of distinguishing between masters and slaves, between senators and politicians and citizens, between people with certain dignitates, dignity starts its life as dignitates, as the privileges, the honors, uh, the uh, public recognition that some people have and others do not. So that is the beginning of the legal person, of the persona, uh, as a legal term, which also goes parallel to that idea of differentiated dignities, uh, dignitates. And then, of course, Christianity changes that. Uh, uh, you know, the person in Christianity, which follows the three persons of uh, the Godhead and so on, uh, becomes something of a metaphysical idea something that brings together body and soul and turns uh, the human into the, in, the image of God, into the reflection of, uh, uh, of, of God. Uh, man was made in the image of God and so on. Uh, so that is the first turn of a conception that distinguishes a legal persona into a moral person into some, someone who, first of all, has the possibility of universalization, although not uh, so much in the Middle Ages, where, of course, only the Christians had those characteristics, but uh, has that, uh, that possibility, uh, that, that uh, potentiality in it. And then, of course, when with modernity, uh, the idea of the person now acquires a secular character, most characteristically in Kant, in Immanuel Kant and the metaphysics of Kant, then of course, uh, at that uh, point, uh, the, uh, the person becomes what we would recognize even today, the autonomous person who makes rational choices as reason, acts morally, accepts responsibility for her acts and so on and so forth. So that is, uh, in a sense, the way through which what initially was distinguishing things and people uh, becomes a universal uh, characteristic. However, and, and that, of course, then moves on into the French and American uh, revolutionary documents, uh, which extend personality to all. Uh, everyone is born free and equal in rights. Um, that is the key claim of the French and American revolutions, and therefore that idea of a moral personality becomes the quality of all humans. Uh, it is the attribute of the moral or the rational part of the human. Sure. The legal person, however, continues uh, her life. The legal person uh, is 
the point of contact between law and concrete humans. Uh, the legal person is a combination of rights and duties, of responsibilities and privileges. And of course, it is not the human. It is a different, uh, a different conception and different configuration of relations and abilities, which is parallel to the human. And indeed, uh, many uh, legal persons are not human. Historically, the corporation, I mean, the church first and then corporations were uh, legal persons next to the limited number of humans who were. And today, of course, uh, legal persons can become all kinds of entities, including um, including robots and uh, artificial intelligence and all the rest of it. So, so yeah, yes. maybe let me just to just to interject, but this is, I think it's very, very clear and to me very challenging and, and interesting. So you, we have the tension between the legal persona and the universal moral self sure. that and, and we see it's the latter that's reflected in the claim also of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, all human beings are born free and equal in, in dignity and rights. That's our ideal, that's our vision. And yes. what you're saying is that the, the legal person that uh, is the, the carrier of rights uh, doesn't always uh, uh, reflect or match that type of universality. And of course, we've seen this. I remember quoting uh, in a concept note for this podcast, uh, Catherine McKinnon, who uh, in the 1990s was very strongly saying that being, being um, a woman is not yet a name for being human, simply Indeed. saying that the, the legal framework does not uh, address um, women as, as uh, fully human. And, um, and, um, and as, as you were saying, that's true of many groups that are being marginalized and excluded uh, in terms of legal personality throughout history and, and still today. And, um, yes. But could one, could one say that there is at least within the human rights framework an attempt to rectify these shortcomings and gaps? So I think that if you take international law and someone like McKinnon may even have been a driver of this, she has been insisting on uh, recognition of, for example, sexual violence within the international humanitarian law and criminal law framework and so on. So there's an attempt at at uh, at rectifying the the deficit. Is is that a, f a fair point, or is there a chronic deficit, so to say, in the uh, in it, the gap? It is. It is a fair point in the sense that the deficit or the gap, as you would put it, between the universality, the moral universality of the person, and the actual empirical rights and the actual empirical recognition of the status of the citizen, of the ordinary person in the world. Uh, that gap existed right from the beginning in the French Declaration, the American Declaration. They say, as you repeat it also yourself from the Universal Declaration, that everyone is born equal in dignity and rights. And at the same time, they are slaves. Women have no political rights whatsoever. People without property have no political rights and so on. So there is this gap. And human rights, you are right in saying, promises somehow to close the gap. And it has closed it in certain uh, ways. I totally agree with you. And of course, Catherine McKinnon was key in turning uh, rape and sexual violence into a crime against humanity that was recognized by the International Criminal Court and so on and so forth. This is absolutely true. 
But what I'm saying is that historically, this gap is there. It has not, it has not disappeared. I mean, obviously, more groups have been included in that uh, idea of the moral personality of the universal attributes of humanity and so on. But the gap is still there. It changes from time to time. And of course, it changes in every, uh, according to the epoch, the age, and according to the society in which we live. But it is there. We see it all the time. I know uh, from, your, from your various writings that various groups that you're looking at is the uh, Saint-Papier, the people, stateless uh, people, which is, of course are, are very vulnerable because they don't have uh, a citizenship to protect their rights, which is embedded in the state-centric international human rights framework, that somehow you need protection of a state, asylum seekers, migrants, and you're also mentioning, for example, prisoners in secret detention centers and so on. So a, a variety of, of, um, of groups. And I, I absolutely can see how the, the very right to be recognized as a, a subject of rights is in question for, for and, and it's, a, it's a blemish and it's, a, it's, it's something shocking and deeply disturbing. Nevertheless, if I think of my colleagues working in the international human rights framework, whether it's as a special rapporteur against torture, going, you know, criticizing facilities in Guantanamo Bay, or whether it's, uh, it's um, many, many other, I mean, human rights um, advocates, their, their life campaign is about calling attention to the deficiency in the implementation and realization of this universal ideal of human rights and acting in very concrete ways of trying to, let's say, narrow or close that gap, if at all possible. You're right. And um, of course, I consider people like those you've mentioned, but even more importantly, uh, people uh, and young people today in the different social movements around the world who try to help those without citizenship, without recognition, without rights, in order to have a basic uh, dignity. And I know you want us to come back to that, uh, a basic dignity. I, I'm totally in favor of that. I mean, in the country I'm currently uh, uh, resident in Greece, the treatment of refugees coming from Syria over the last five or six years uh, has been totally, I think, Despicable is a strong term, totally unacceptable, particularly over the last two years. Uh, however, lots and lots of young people have gone out and shown solidarity and shown what it means really to be fighting uh, for human rights. And the same over the pandemic with the solidarity towards the more vulnerable and so on and so forth. However, it seems to me, and that takes us to the key question that you pose, that the problem about the, this non-recognition of rights for certain categories of people, for certain categories of situations and so on, is not just a kind of incidental difficulty uh, that you generally have between grant ideas and their application, their, uh, their uh, actual uh, uh, enforcement in practice. It is something deeper than that, which I would put it for the purposes of our current uh, point uh, in, in this way. The idea of a universal humanity that creates human rights, gives it to people, and then people enjoy those rights, uh, is logically 
in a sense, unable to carry out this because those universal human rights have to be delivered by the local policeman, the local government, the local judge, or the local you know, oligarch, you know, who actually has the power to oppress and dominate people. In other words, while we have a universal and universalizable in the, in the Kantian terms, conception of morality, empirically, that has to be delivered not by some universal moral uh, humanity that does not exist, but by local authorities, by local governments, local laws, local administrators and policemen uh, and, and, and policemen and judges. And that kind of logical uh, relationship, contact between the universal and the empirical means that in every instance where a particular society, a particular group, a particular ideology excludes certain people from the position of the fully human, the rights will be there as an ideal, but the reality will not be given to them. And unfortunately, we cannot overcome, we cannot transcend that position. So, so I, I think just to maybe wrap up this particular, this initial part of the discussion, I would, I would maybe say that, that from my point of view, I would, would grant that, that, that the, the, the split cannot be entirely overcome, but I'm not sure I see that as an argument against the uh, ideal of, of, uh, of universal and universalizable human rights. I would say we need it both as an ideal to work towards and as a critical standard to, to uh, denounce blatant wrongs. And, 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 so I'm, and that's maybe where I'm not entirely... Um, uh, so I, so I, I take, I take your, your point and your argument, and I think it's, it's very important for us, but I, I feel it's not really an argument against the international human rights framework so much as a reminder of never being uh, complacent, so to say, or, you know... If I may, you know, just add that I'm, I, I don't argue against that uh, uh, framework. Uh, I keep calling it a paradox, that human rights are a paradox, that on the one hand, create that sense of ideal, of some kind of, uh, of, of horizon that, you know, we are uh, going towards or aspiring to, to it and so on, but its reality can never match up. So, you know, that is slightly different from being against sure, it. Sure, sure. It's telling people that, listen, this is not the last utopia. This is not the only ideology in town that we have, you know, sort of to, to you know, to march to its tune because there is nothing else. That, that, that is the point I'm making. Yeah. I'm not against I could not be against, as I said, you know, sort of I was someone who uh, benefited hugely from human rights, and that's why I've been an activist, uh, you know, all my life. But I think there's certain, uh, certain exaggerations, a certain triumphalism uh, in the, some of the human rights uh, writers, which I think gives their own impression uh, to people. No, I, a point well taken. I, th I think it's also quite clear in your, in your book that, that the... Um, the insistence on correcting that what, what you call triumphalism is, is quite the dominant voice and so sometimes I feel an, an, a need to, to let's say also uh, remember the, uh, the, the need for this, uh, this critical perspective that I, I believe still the human rights framework uh, 
provides exactly in relation to some of the defi de deficits that you're, that you're pointing out. I would like, maybe like to move us into the, the paradoxes and, and maybe and there's, there are many steps in between, but one of the key themes, I think, also of your work um, is the way in which the human rights framework is at best, let's say, effectively compatible with uh, the neoliberalistic capitalist order, and so it coexists uh, uh, uncomfortably perhaps, but nevertheless with uh, quite extreme global inequality and widening gaps between rich and poor, inclusion and exclusion and so on. And, and you, one might even want to go a step further and say that it's not just a matter of of a coexistence, there's even some form of collusion, you know, that the way in which the subject is configured in the um, legal uh, uh, language is a precondition in some ways for maintaining the, um, the market economy and, and, and so on. What would, what would you say to that? I think this is perhaps, you know, the most important contemporary issue question uh, about the international, uh, particularly the international uh, human rights regime. Uh, you see, the human rights obviously won. Won after 1989, after the, uh, the end of the Soviet Union and so on, because, of course, the Cold War, uh, the second part of the Cold War, had been presented as having human rights as a key uh, kind of bone of contention between the Western the so-called Western part of the world and the Eastern part and so on. So they won. And then we have a period of some 30 years in which three uh, other aspects of uh, international and domestic life coincided with this victory of human rights. First, what the economists called neoliberalism. You know, the idea that the market is what, uh, you know, is the, the, is the best, indeed, the only proper principle of distribution, and the market principle should be introduced in all aspects of social life, not just in terms of financial markets and so on. Secondly, what we had what sociologists call globalization. We all understand that. And then political theorists also spoke about something they called the post-democratic condition. Post-democratic condition meaning that somehow because social uh, issues and social problems and questions are extremely uh, difficult and technical and so on, they should not enter political discourse and political uh, conflict and so on and compromises, but should be given to experts, technicians, you know, sort of who will give answers to them. So these three things, these three tendencies, extremely important, that have very much changed the way we live uh, if we go back uh, 30 or 40 years, um, have coincided with human rights. And there is, this question has been posed by many, uh, I think, academics, intellectuals, writers, commentators. Uh, are human rights, is, uh, you know, sort of this tradition of human rights uh, just coinciding with these developments, or is it part of this new configuration of world and, uh, and domestic uh, uh, life? Or to put it differently, is political liberalism, which is a hugely proud tradition. It's a tradition of the rights of man, or naturalized then of human rights, civil and political liberties, democratic freedom and so on. Is that kind of liberalism and 
the economic liberalism that has imposed austerity policies to Italy, to Greece, to Portugal, to the south of Europe, and of course, all over the world with the so-called Washington Consensus and all the rest of it. Are these two things the same? Are they linked? No, they're not the same. I mean, obviously, they, uh, they, they deal with different parts of life. Are they same? Are they linked? Um, now, of course, the initial impetus of uh, natural rights and of human rights uh, was the promotion of individual freedom against the state, against state interference. Um, and individual suffering from state oppression, from public uh, power oppression, are the privileged, and quite rightly so, the privileged group, uh, civil and political uh, liberties, the main uh, tool of protection. However, when we move to the part of life which for most people in the world, and particularly the global south, is much more important, which is material prosperity and a global view of what it means to have a good life. There, human rights have not played a role. And if anything, in those neoliberal austerity policies that accompanied that period of human rights victory, human rights acceptance, uh, one could say that you know they had, uh, at least in terms of a chronological coincidence, but perhaps also in terms of a certain causal connection, they had not a positive uh, effect. I mean, this is an argument that, I, I, I take your point, there's an argument that is increasingly being made. We confronted a similar argument in some ways in a discussion with Samuel Moyne uh, recently, and, and he is making and even going a step further criticizing the economic, social, and cultural rights framework as not enough, as the title of one of his, uh, his recent publications. I would, again, like to challenge that interpretation yeah. a bit, uh, and I, I'll, I'll point to two considerations. One is that, you know, I, I see also in your, in your work a certain, um, yeah, what, what one can say, it's a, I, I don't want to say you're ne necessarily completely reviving or repeating the Marxian critique of the uh, legacy of the French Revolution, but there's an element of that, you know, seeing these, the, uh, the individual underlying the, 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 the man of the rights of man or the human in the in human rights framework as someone who's atomized, individualized, self-centered, and in fundamentally egotistical in, in, a, in a certain way. So not, not social, not um, not member of a, a political community in a in a uh, effective way, um, and you know I feel that this is in many ways not doing justice to the implicit ethos of of human rights. As we you were saying yourself, most of the human rights as they exist today are in many ways a legacy of, of struggle, of, of people claiming rights. And this, I think, is true both of civil political rights and economic, social, and cultural rights. You know, the, the economic, social, and cultural rights are the, the legacy of social movements, claiming some degree of minimum protections uh, by society, decent working conditions, and, and, and so on and so forth. And I think to reduce this whole framework to a kind of self-centered, in, in individual uh, agent of the market is, is, uh, is, is not doing full justice to the, the framework. And I think similarly, the, um, the, the implicit ethos of human rights is in many ways, is, it does reflect an element of 
social commitment, solidarity, wanting uh, uh, to, to empower people to take charge of their own destinies, which could also be a way of, of approaching the idea of the good life, you know, that it's, uh, it's not just a matter of passively enjoying material goods, it's a matter of being an agent in one's own uh, sphere of, of action and, and uh, architect of one's own destiny. And I think if you look at the, the whole catalog of international human rights, they're in, in all aspects are about empowering individuals to be, to be active in the context they inhabit. And, and, uh, and I see that as, as much more, so to say, than the, the sort of counterpart to a, a, a neoliberalistic, unequal capitalist economy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I take uh, the criticism. And I think, you know, this is an extremely important issue in terms of uh, how we move forward at this particular point in, uh, in our history. Um, but it seems to me that that this kind of uh, critique, the critique that, you know, myself and some more, and of course, I would never agree with uh, Sam that uh, human rights is the last utopia. It is precisely not the last utopia. It is not a utopia. Utopia is something which is not yet, which is something to be achieved, which is something that goes into the idea of a good life, a full, a fulfilled, completed life and so on. But that is a different question. So it is important. It is important. Now, is individualism, particularly that kind of egotistical individualism, uh, part of uh, a certain conception, a dominant conception of human rights today? I would say that it is. Uh, it is. It, it was, of course, back in the 18th century, it was in the 19th century when those kinds of, uh, of individual political and civil freedoms and democratic freedoms did not exist. At that point, what you call the ability to act, as uh, Michel Villers, the great uh, legal historian, put, puts it, in uh, pouvoir d'azir, to act, to make decisions, to be in the world, all that was absolutely uh, a crucial, and it is very much part of our modernity. This is modernity. There's no doubt about that. But once we move into you know, the contemporary situation of the last 30 or 40 years when uh, human rights became the official ideology, uh, then at that same period, market capitalism, a kind of aggressive uh, looking towards my own interests and not caring very much about others, became at the same time extremely, uh, extremely central. Uh, and if you look around the world, take the work of the Indian, the great Indian theorist, uh, Upendra Bhaksi. He shows how property and trade-related rights provide a set of moral values and legal institutions which are necessary for uh, economic uh, globalization. Uh, you take uh, an excellent work uh, on the morals uh, of, uh, of human rights, uh, recently published, which says that uh, somehow human rights have become the the, the moral, uh, the moral uh, component or the moral justification of, of, uh, of uh, the, the world dispensation. And of course, if you look at the recent wars, all recent wars, even Putin, you know, the murderer Putin 
is using a kind of human rights tradition, claiming that he went to Ukraine because the Russian speakers were being, uh, were being murdered, there were atrocities against them and so on. But at every recent war, all the way to, of course, Syria, it was there supposedly to protect human rights. So that, that is one side of the problem with international human rights. The other side is that unfortunately, as I tell my students in London, but also in Greece, we have any number of human rights from the Universal Declaration to all kinds of treaties, conventions, ILO uh, treaties and so on, claiming that we have a right to work. And then I turn around and I said, what could I say as a human rights uh, expert and campaigner to the 40% of the young people in Greece or the 20% in Britain that do not have any work. So unless you know the human rights tradition adopts a serious attitude, and of course the law more generally, towards the protection of those social and economic rights, things like the right to work, but also the right to health. We saw the huge difference between people in the advanced Western world and the third world over the pandemic. We saw the vaccination nationalism. We saw the fact that in while in Western Europe, up to 70% of people are fully vaccinated. In some parts of Africa, we go back to 5%. This is a totally unjust world. If human rights is not prepared to own up to that and see how they can help it, then it seems to me it loses to a certain extent its uh, raison d'etre. Okay. But at the same time, you have, for example, now speaking of the right to health, one of the recent uh, UN Special Rapporteurs on the right to health, like Anand Grover, for example, was yeah. devoting his entire mandate to identifying and criticizing exactly this point, you know, from, from the perspective of Article 12 of the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. So as, as to say the, the sort of oscillation between seeing the rights framework as a critical resource and, and as a as a sort of complacent justification is, a, is, a, is, is not that clear-cut, I think, in, in fact. No, no, so, but I agree when you're saying that. But here, you know, so let me say just one sentence, which is more general about law, not just rights, but also rights as, as legal rights. There is always a difference between the normative world, you could call it, of rights and laws and treaties and conventions and so on, and the empirical world where you and I live. There is a difference there. There is a little gap again between what all these uh, uh, documents and texts and norms, you know, come together according to Kelsen. Of course, it is all very coherent, internally connected. One thing leads to another in a logical argumentative sense and so on. And then of course we have another world, which is the real world in which we live and there's no link between the two. So of course it is important and it is a critical resource, as you say, to have, uh, you know, to have uh, committees and reports and indeed rights, rights themselves. But that says quite little, it, not nothing, but little about what it means for people in the real world. So, so I don't know if this properly, I, I take your point. I don't know if this properly summarizes because I see somewhere in your, or repeatedly, in fact, in, in your work, you talk about the, the risk of rights becoming, a, a, like you were also saying, expert culture, becoming a technical uh, framework that, in fact, depoliticizes politics in a, 
in a sense. And what I'm arguing, I suppose, is to try to take rights seriously in a certain, as, a, as a resource to overcome injustices within the political sphere means, in a certain sense, repoliticizing rights and re recapturing part of the, 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 the demen struggle dimension that people like Christoph Heinz and, and Baxi as well and many others have, have very strongly accentuated in their interpretation and in their work. I don't know if that's a fair... Uh, a fair way, but I would like it's to. A great, a great. I, yeah, I, and I, I see the same. In fact, in relation to the moral uh, uh, dimension of of rights, we were talking the the agency aspect. That uh, and I, I, as as you know, I like yeah. very much the um, Martin Nussbaum's emphasis on linking rights with expanding human capabilities, uh, which I see as a resource for becoming politically active in a, in a sense. So, so there's, a, there's a, an interpretation that I think is not entirely contrary to, to your understanding as well, but just accentuating from a little bit from the opposite point of view. No, not, not at all. And actually the work of Nussbaum and, uh, and Amati Sen, uh, the capabilities uh, sort of gender, in a sense is presented as an alternative to the idea of well-being uh, based just on rights and freedoms. You know, it is a totally different one. And, and of course, in, in my kind of, sort of vocabulary, uh, capabilities would also be linked with needs, you know, with needs, with human needs, uh, in which both the body and the soul, both parts of a human being, you know, are, are, are part of it. But you did say something for me absolutely central, the repoliticizing of politics. This is absolutely a key, it seems to me, uh, aspect, a key object, aspiration for all of us who work either as campaigners and movements or as uh, writers and thinkers and so on with, uh, with human rights. And the right to resistance is absolutely right at the heart of it. Resistance for me is a key characteristic of what it means to be human. I mean, the two major genesis uh, uh, kind of stories, uh, you know, Adam and Eve, and of course, uh, Prometheus in the Greek uh, tradition, uh, uh, created humanity by defying the orders and the commands of the gods, of the higher uh, authority, and so on and so forth. And everything we have today, every right, every Every uh, every facility, everything that you know we're proud for in our tradition is very much the result of struggle. And and to that extent, when law and philosophy and the dominant part of the world tried repeatedly and, and even today to delete uh, resistance from the annals of law, the annals of human rights, and so on, uh, it, it was you know, playing a losing game because irrespective of what the law says against disobedience, against resistance, even against revolution, they will always come back like the repressed. You may ban it, you may punish people, you know, sort of who are, who are carrying them out, but it will come back. Uh, Ukraine is a very good example. I can, you know, give you a million examples, but I'm sure you know them uh, yourself. That idea that uh, you know sort of human characteristic to resist power whether it is public or private and to put forward an idea of the well-being of the human that cannot be kept 
down, cannot be dismissed for too long. That is for me a key aspect of the human rights tradition. If it is, if it gets lost, and it does get lost from time to time, then of course, you know, the end of human rights, the purpose of human rights comes to an end. That is, you know, a key thing that I, I, I keep arguing. And I think we leave it quite obviously, uh, you know, both in its positive, in its dynamic, energetic, acting, agentic way, but also in the passive, negative way in which the powers that be want, of course, to keep people out, uh, to keep people away from the ability to defend themselves, and therefore they criminalize resistance, they criminalize dissent, they criminalize protest, as it happened quite extensively, as you know, during, during the pandemic, uh, where not only uh, public protest was banned in very many places on the grounds of public health uh, reasons, but they moved also at the meta level in France, in, in, uh, in, uh, in the United Kingdom, in Greece, and they also started banning protests altogether or imposing almost impossible conditions. Oh. But the human spirit will come through. And to my mind, there is no stronger, I think, expression of the human spirit uh, than the right of resistance. If human rights protect, promote, give, uh, as you said, tools, uh, critical resources for that resistance, then they're doing their job properly. No, I don't disagree, in fact, and I'm very happy you made that connection because that was exactly the last point I wanted us to address. And I like your, um, your sort of semi-Freudian uh, invocation of, of what's not, of, of the repressed returning, and, and you could even say, uh, I mean, with Freud as well, what is not remembered will be repeated. And I think the remembrance of the legacy of resistance, which I think is a, is a core aspect of what has created and defined the human rights framework, has to be kept uh, vibrant and alive, or else the things will ex explode in our, our faces, so to say. So I, in that sense, I think we're very much on the on the same page. I would maybe want to interject that there's another question, which is, the, the issue of the degree to which struggle and resistance is bound to be human rights compliant, you know, which is uh, in and of itself a difficult uh, uh, requirement because it's sometimes experienced as delegitimizing de struggle, and that's something we have to be very aware of and very careful about, and at the same time, to legitimize violation and abuse in the name of resistance is also problematic. So I see this as another field of tension that requires very, uh, you know, alert consideration and, and reflection. Yeah, uh, no, I, I take your point, uh, but I should also say that all revolutions in history and all radical change in history started by being seen as criminal, as being, you know, totally wrong. And, you know, was uh, when it was happening, it, it, it was being suppressed and, you know, sort of the, the full power of the law, as it were, was brought upon it. But once, uh, once victorious, the few occasions in which revolutions won, then, of course, that whole uh, history changed. The terrorists became a freedom fighter, remember Mandela. And the, uh, you know, that kind of event that was seen as totally unacceptable, uh, as indeed, you know, sort of sinful at the time of its happening, then 
is read back anachronistically as part of a long historical tradition that was inevitably uh, leading to its occurrence. And, and that is the key thing about the point you're making about legitimation and delegitimation. In a sense, the human rights tradition and the law legitimizes certain things, did legitimizes others. But the force of history, the force of the event, if we want to call it that, is something that keeps that idea of resistance on the road. So even if human rights is at one level about uh, courts and lawyers and legal texts and international law and treaties and so on, on the other hand, it is also uh, part of the traditional, I would call, the rights of the street, the rights of the dissident, the rights of the person who has been oppressed or who has been dominated or, or exploited. And for those people, rights do not mean courts and judges and so on, but when they go out and they say, I want the right to this, I want the right to that, which is given in international law, international treaties, or in my, my sense of morality and conscience and so on, when they say that, they are also part of the human rights tradition as any uh, rapporteur of sure. international law and, uh, and, and human rights uh, judge. Sure. Thank you. I, I, I think that's um, absolutely um, taken on board and, and agreed. I, I think we should wrap up now and I think the discussion at least is a very, very strong reminder for me of, um, of how valuable your work is because it really challenges us, it challenges someone like me and, and my students to, to, to um, examine our own uh, ideas in a, in a critical perspective and to become at least more articulate. And I think that's, uh, that's a, huge, uh, a hugely valuable um, uh, contribution you're making to, um, to both education and, uh, and philosophy, and, and uh, I appreciate that very much. So, and I would love to continue these discussions, and I'm sure we'll have occasion to do that as well. I'd yeah. like to just wrap up by, uh, on behalf of the Global Campus of Human Rights, thanking you so much for joining the podcast and uh, to also thank all the listeners of the podcast uh, for uh, engaging with us. This is the end of the current podcast series. We're grateful to all of you listeners who have uh, joined us and engaged together with us. And I'm very grateful to my colleagues who have helped um, the Global Campus branch into this new medium of podcast, and especially the director of the Global Campus e-learning department, Angela Melchiora. So please stay tuned, and there will be more interesting and challenging podcasts to come from our side. Mm -hmm.